You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. We're actually beginning a, a new sermon series today. Uh, we're going to be talking about kind of a, an archaic word, an archaic idea maybe uh, these days called virtue. Uh, we're going to be talking about this idea of virtue, having a, a moral grounding, a moral good. Uh, living a life uh, that is grounded in truth and in good, a life that's free from vice, a life that's self-controlled. Um, and this theme of avoiding vice and pursuing virtue is certainly not new. It's kind of what Western civilization in some degrees was, was built on. Uh, it's in a lot of the stories that we tell and a lot of the the- it's a lot of the themes of the songs that we sing. I remember being a high school student and learning about Canterbury Tales in my high school English class. And of course, you know, if you read this book, it tells, uh, it's all these people telling tales, you know, the pardoner, the, the knight, the miller, they're all telling these tales. Uh, and they're all about these vices that they are kind of saying other people have. But of course, as you read the tales, all the people that are telling uh, the story have vices of their own. Um, this idea of vice and virtue has kind of been common throughout the history of the world. And, and, and so I want to talk about developing a life of, of virtue today. And we're not going to be talking about the traditional seven virtues, but the, the five virtues that I want to look at over the next few weeks with you, I believe are essential for the Christian life. I would go so far as to say that you probably aren't a Christian, unless to some degree or another, these things are a part of you. And the virtues that we're going to be talking about are humility, hope, gratitude, forgiveness, and purity. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not a sermon series about pursuing virtue as a means of finding favor with God, but a sermon series about pursuing virtue as a response to finding favor with God, a response to having found favor with God. And that's a big distinction. Throughout the history of humanity, the history of the world, man has sought to initiate a relationship with God. Or you could put it this way, man has sought to initiate a relationship with immortality. We have this desire to know God or this desire to be immortal. This is in a sense what religion is, man initiating a relationship with God or man pursuing immortality. And everyone does this. Even atheists are pursuing to some degree or another immortality. They're, they're trying to, to please God, however you might define that. I read an article recently in New York Magazine, and it was an interview with Sasha Sagan, who's the daughter of you know, the famous um, you know, cosmetologist Carl Sagan. Of course, Carl Sagan died in 1996 when Sasha was just 12 years old, or I think 14 years old. And you know, so this is her now as a 30-something-year-old. I guess she's you know, my age is a 30-something-year-old reflecting on her father's work. And she said, you know, growing up, I had learned all the reasons why real immortality is impossible from my father. And she's, as she's doing this, she's looking at some of his papers. Yet, I could not help but imagine, standing there, she was standing there looking at this collection of his papers, 23rd or 24th century school children looking at my dad's penmanship under the glass and feel that his life was really extended in some tangible way. See, there you have it. 
even though there's no sort of you know, supernatural belief in God, there's this desire for immortality. There's this desire to go on. And in a, in a material sense, that's how you've made it. That's how you've lived on. You've lived on if you're remembered, if, if school children two centuries from now remember you. But all, all of us have this desire. All of us have this desire for religion. Man initiating a relationship with God, init- doing something impressive enough that we'll be remembered, doing something impressive enough that God will accept us. And so I don't want you to be confused and think, okay, this is a sermon series about becoming virtuous people so that God will accept us, so that God will be pleased with us and accept us to himself. That's not what this is a sermon series about. This is a sermon series not about pursuing virtue as a means to finding favor with God, but rather pursuing virtue as a response to having found favor with God. Religion is man initiating a relationship with God, but the Bible is all about God initiating a relationship with man. God initiates the the first relationship, the relationship with Adam. God initiates the relationship with Noah. When the people of Babel try to build a tower to initiate a relationship with God, God is not pleased with this, and he scatters them. And then soon after this, God initiates a relationship with Abraham. God initiates a relationship with Moses. We see this all throughout Scripture. God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt by his own hand and then gives them the law, then teaches them virtue, if you will. And this, of course, continues into the New Testament. It's exactly what we see in the New Testament. God initiates a relationship with us. God sends Jesus. God sends Jesus to be our rescuer, to be our hope. But what is the right response to that? It's, it's to follow him. It's to pursue him in righteousness. It's to pursue him in virtue, in humility, in purity, in true hope. Now you could say, well, hold on. If God is the initiator of the relationship with us, then, then he's going to do everything, right? He's going to take care of everything. What does what pursuing virtue really have to do with anything if God is the one that's pursuing all of this? Well, I think a good way to think about being a disciple of Christ, you know, if you've you've had this question before, a good way to think about being a disciple of Christ is to think about the disciples of Christ, to think about the people that follow Jesus. What happens there? God, Jesus initiated the relationship. He went to them. He, He pursued them. He invited them to follow him, but then they had to follow him. They had to learn to be like him. They had to pursue him. They had to listen to him. To use a a phrase from D.A. Carson, it required grace-driven effort. It was initiated by Jesus. It was driven by grace, but it was, it was effort. It was grace-driven effort. It took faith to follow Jesus. It took courage to follow Jesus. It took effort or grace-driven effort. To quote, to use a phrase or a verse from Paul, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you, implied you, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is grace-driven effort. God is working, so you work, you pursue, you, you find your way in him. So today as we talk about pursuing virtue, not as a means to find favor with God, but as a response to having found favor with God, I want to talk to you about one of the most important virtue, something that must be true of your life. If you really have encountered God, if you really are in Christ, this this must be said of us. C.S. Lewis says that this virtue is the antidote to the greatest vice. Uh, He says it's how we overcome the, the greatest vice, which is pride. 
Thomas Aquinas said that this is the greatest of all the virtues. And of course, I'm talking about humility. Now, all of these virtues that we're going to be looking at, as I said, they are evidences of a life in God. They're evidences of a life in Christ. As I said, I don't think you can, unless these virtues appear in your life to some degree or another, it's going to be hard for you to make a case that you, that you have had a salvation experience, that you, that you are walking with the Lord, that you are a believer. Let me just read a couple of passages that show this about humility in particular. Let's, let's look at them here. For the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. The haughty, he knows from afar. And there's so many verses, but just a, a couple others here from the book of Matthew. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We see the same passage in 1 Peter and in James. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see the same thing in James 4, 6. And then his response to this in James 4, 10, James says, humble yourselves then before the Lord and he will exalt you. So obviously humility is essential for the Christian life, for a life of godliness. But how does one go about developing humility? How do you go about pursuing a humble life? And I think this can be very confusing, especially for successful Atlanta people like yourselves. You know, I, most of you probably made pretty good grades, pretty smart, pretty confident. You were probably the children that your parents said, I'm so proud of you, son. Go make us proud, right? And then you are supposed to be pursuing humility. What does this mean? How am I, how am I really going to do this? What does it mean to develop a humble life? What does humility even really mean? Is it just to be quiet, right? Is it to be meek? Is it to be lowly? Is that what it means to be humble? Can you be successful and humble? And beyond that, how do you even know if you are humble? Martin Luther one time said in one of his little table talks, true humility doesn't know that it's humble. If it did, it would be proud of the contemplation of so fine a virtue. So I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to be. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about pursuing genuine virtue. Virtue, typically in a sermon series like this or a sermon like this, the pastor would come out and he would say, you know, you need to act more humble. You need to do more humble things. You know, he may give you some examples of very humble people or very humble acts. You may read some of the passages that I just looked at and said, this is the biblical uh, humility and the value of biblical humility. And you'd go out of here charged up, ready to be humble, right? And you know what you do? You might even act humble, however, whatever you perceive that to mean for a little while but you wouldn't be any more humble. Virtue is not something that you do. It's not an act. It's, it's a characteristic of who you are. So that's what I'm talking about. I don't want you to understand humility better. I don't want you to have better models of humility. Those, those are good things to have. What I want to be true of you is that you would actually be humble people as God intended for you to be. How do you become a virtuous person? Now, in order to do this, you have to start in the right place. In order to really become who God wants you to be, you have to start in the right place. And, and, here's, and here's what I mean by that. Here's the right place to start. 
when God conceived you, when God thought you up, when God thought humanity up and the human that you are up, he conceived you right, good, whole, right? God conceived humans to be virtuous. Now, I'm not saying that you were conceived by your mother as totally virtuous. I'm saying you were conceived in the mind of God as totally virtuous, as totally right. Now, of course, we know that along the way, we, we inherit sin, we've inherited fallenness and brokenness from our parents and our parents and our parents, all the way back to the first man and woman who fell away from the design of God. But somewhere in you, the design of you is good, is right. And so in order to, to, to get back to God's design for self, to find the virtue that, that God wired into us, we've got to figure out where we went wrong. We've got to figure out what is disoriented in our life? What is disordered in our life? What is perverted in our mind to get back in line with the design of God, with the mind of God? And how do we do that? And that's really where we're going to go for these next five weeks. And there's probably many ways, but the way that we're going to think about these next five weeks is through prayer. How do you get back in line with the mind of God, with the design of God? And the answer is praying as God intended you to pray, praying, communing with God as guided by the scripture. I love this quote, some of you all, I think I put it on social media a few months ago before our prayer conference, but Tim Keller sent his little book on prayer. Prayer is the only entry into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our lives. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things that he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things that we most desire. It is the way that we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and to be in life. So with that as an introduction, what we're going to be doing over the next five weeks together is looking at the Lord's Prayer, famous prayer, it's probably the longest passage of scripture that any of you have, or most of you have memorized, right? We have to be honest. We, most of us know it. Most of us have been saying it our entire lives. But I want to look at this Lord's Prayer and, 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 and understand that if we, if we truly will pray as, as guided by scripture, as I said, this will produce virtue in our lives. It will produce a wholeness in your life, a righteousness in your life. So let me just begin today by reading the passage. Let's meditate on it together. You've heard this before, but just listen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. And so for the rest of our time today, as we think about humility, as I've introduced, I just want to look at the first part of the passage. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I just have two points that I want to look at with this. First of all, the name of God, and then secondly, the place of men. The name of God and the place of men. So let's begin with the name of God. The thing that has gotten distorted in you. The reason that you and I are not humble, 
The reason that we don't have this virtue, the reason that we are proud is that we have not prayed in this way and we have not understood the name of God. We have not had him in the right place. This prayer begins in a very interesting way. Again, you've said this prayer a lot. You've said it at football games. You've said it, um, you know, in church. You've said it in big rallies. It's a very famous prayer, but let's really hear it. It begins in this very powerful way. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Now, for a long time, I thought this part was a declaration. I thought it was Jesus saying to his Father, Your name is holy. Your name is good. Your name is right. It was a declaration. Your name is high, and and it's right to make declarations of praise. That wouldn't be a bad thing to do, but that's not what this is. This is a request. This is Jesus saying, Father, hallow your name. Now, hallow, it's an interesting word to use. It's an old English word. I mean, nobody uses this anymore. Uh, But still in 2001, when this ESV translation was translated, the translators decided, we're going to choose hallow for this. It's an old word, but it's a good word. It means, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is, Father, make your name to be known as holy. Make your name to be known as worthy. Make your name to be known as full and right and grand. Hallow your name. Make holy your name. Make your name to be known rightly. Hallow your name. There's kind of a weight about the word. So I want to think about that with you. What what does this fully mean, to hallow the name of God? Well, there's many clues in Scripture Uh, It certainly means to believe the name of the Lord, to obey the Lord. Uh, But I just, I only have time to get to one that I wanted to look at you with you today is Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. This is the prophet warning the people of Judah not to go the way of the world. And he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy, or rather him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. How, how do you hallow the name of God according to this text? You hallow him by not fearing what men fear, but by fearing God. Now that's an interesting phrase. You've heard that. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it really mean to fear the name of the Lord? What does it mean to fear God? And and I want to talk about this with you. I think there's at least kind of two thrusts of fear that are right for us to understand. First of all, there's a fear of respect. And secondly, there's a fear of desire. Let's talk about a fear of respect. In one sense, I fear the Lord because I respect the Lord. Don't fear what men say. Isaiah is saying here, don't fear what men may do to you, fear the Lord. This is kind of as Jesus said in the New Testament, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, fear the one who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. That's the one you really need to be fearing. That's the one that you really should shudder when you think of. Who do you fear? Who do you most respect? I want you to think about that. Who do you most respect? Who are you hallowing? 
Do you really fear the Lord's displeasure? Do you really fear uh, sinning against the holy and almighty and all-powerful God? Has that, that notion just left us behind? Or do we fear more the displeasure of our boss? Do we fear more losing our house or losing a spouse or losing our children? Do we fear being labeled a Jesus freak and it costing us in the marketplace? Or do we fear the name of God? Are we hallowing the Lord? Do we respect the name of the Lord? When you say no to the world and yes to the Lord, you may be destroyed by the world, but God will compensate you for that. Isn't this what Jesus says? You know, anybody who's left houses and lands for my name's sake, God will give him so much more, many times more in this time and in the time to come. If you, if you say no to the world and yes to the Lord, you may be destroyed by the world, but God will compensate you for that. But when you say no to God and yes to the world, God will destroy you. And the world can never compensate you for that. The world can never compensate you for eternal separation from the almighty God. Here's the deal, guys. He is the only one who really matters. When all is said and done, who do you fear? Fear the right one. Fear the one who is holding the cards. Fear the one who really has authority, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So in one sense, this is a, a fear of respect. It's a, it's a hallowing the name of the Lord because he is worthy of that. But there's also the, the fear of desire. The fear of desire. You know, before I got married, I never had a security system. You know, when I was in college, I lived in an apartment, I lived in a fraternity house. And then after college, I was in a seminary, I lived in this house, had all these guys and a dog you know, I, I didn't have a security system. I didn't even lock my doors. I don't think I locked my door until I married Paige. But now, you know what I do? I lock my doors. I have a security system. I have motion sensing lights. I have a little camera in my living room. If you come into my living room at night, I can watch you, see what you're doing in there. Why? Well, when I was single, I didn't have anything that I really feared losing. I didn't have anything that I really had to protect. But when I got married, I had the fear of desire. I didn't want to lose Paige. I didn't want anything to come and hurt Paige. And my ch now that I have children, I don't want anything to, to come and hurt my children. I have a fear of desire. You know, my children, in one sense, can't hurt me in a sense of strength. I don't have the fear of respect for them, really. I mean, they, they, they're weak, you know? <laughs> they're just little kids. But they have a grip on my heart that is so strong. And I don't, I don't want to lose intimacy with them. I don't want to lose fellowship with them. I have this fear of desire. They have a grip on my heart. Does the Lord have a grip on your heart? Do you fear displeasing him? Do you fear losing intimacy with him? See, to hallow the name of the Lord 
is to rightly fear the Lord. It means to fear losing his approval. Losing his approval would be the most dreadful thing to you because you respect him and because you desire him. Are you hallowing the name of the Lord? And here's the deal. You're hallowing something. You're hallowing something. You're you're making holy and worthy something. William Temple said, your religion is what you do in solitude. Your religion is what you do in solitude. When you're all by yourself, or when you've been let down, when you're sad, when you're lonely, where does your mind drift? What is it that justifies you? What is it that makes you someone? What is it that you, your mind goes to? Okay, I'm okay because of this. I'm, I'm, I'm someone because of that. I'm special because of this. Where does your mind drift? That's your religion. That's what you're hallowing. And you know, most of the time for Atlanta people, it's something you've done. I'm special because I built this great business. I'm special because I did this. I did that. I held it together. I, I did righteous things. Or maybe it's something that you're going to do. I'm special because I know I'm still young, but I'm going to do this great thing or that. Or maybe you're single. You know, I, I, I'm a little lonely now, but one day I know that I'm going to marry a great man and I'm going to be fine. Where does your mind drift? What's justifying you? When, when you're all alone, the religion is what happens in solitude. What, what, where does your mind go? That's what you're hallowing. And you know, this is the reason that so many of you, if you have to be honest, struggle with deep anxiety and depression and doubt, a lack of peace, it's because you're hallowing the wrong thing. You're hallowing something that could never satisfy you. You're hallowing something that could never fulfill you. You have put, your, you have put yourself in the place of deciding what will make you happy. You have put yourself in the place of deciding what will make you whole, in the place of deciding what is good. There's a famous story in the Bible. It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph, if you remember, he was, I mean, he was the guy. He was the golden-haired child. He was the favorite. He was the smart kid in the family. And he was probably also a little brash a little arrogant, and, and one day he goes out to see his brothers, and, and some of you know the story, his brothers see him, and they just say, oh, Joseph, that arrogant guy, like that dreamer, he has all these big dreams of how he's going to rule and be so special, and so they decide to kill him, but they don't kill him. They end up selling him into slavery, and this is their brother, their own brother. They sell into slavery, goes off to Egypt. They expect to never see him again. They lie to their dad, and Joseph goes into slavery, and you know, things go from bad to worse for him. He's accused of raping the master's wife, even though he didn't do it. He was actually just trying to be righteous and do what was right and follow the Lord. And then, of course, things get from bad to worse. He goes to prison. He ends up staying in prison forever. And in this amazing, crazy turn of events, Joseph goes from being sold into slavery by his brothers to being a slave, to being accused of rape, to going to prison, to being the second most powerful man in all the world. And he saves Egypt and he saves all the surrounding uh, area from famine. It's this amazing story. Well, finally, his brothers, they, they get hungry. They're in famine. They come back to him and they, they, they 
they realize, oh my goodness, this is Joseph. What, what has happened? This is the brother. And, and they, they come to him at the end of the story, and I'm skipping a lot of details, but they come to him at the end of the story and they say, Joseph, please don't be mad at us. Please don't be mad at us. We're very sorry for hating you, for despising you, for selling you into slavery, for thinking about killing you, for lying to our father. Please don't be mad at us. And what does Joseph do? What does Joseph say in that situation? He doesn't say, well, how do you like me now, brothers? You know, I told you I was going to be something special. I told you this is all going to happen. You didn't believe me, but look at me now. You know what Joseph says? He says, am I in the place of God? Fear not, brothers. Am I in the place of God? Am I the one that judges what was right and wrong? Am I in the place of God? No. This isn't what I would have chosen. I wouldn't have chosen to be taken away from my family and sold into slavery and go to prison. But this is what God chose. Am I in the place of God? There's total forgiveness. There's total peace. There's this total calm about it. There's no anxiety in Joseph. Am I in the place of God? You see, have you put yourself in the place of God? Have you put yourself in the place of the one that's decide what's going to make you happy and what you're supposed to be doing with life and how you're going to be ultimately fulfilled? Are you hallowing the right name is the question. Are you hallowing the name of God who is worthy of praise, who has good and right plans for your life? This is why the prayer of coincidentally continues. It doesn't continue. So my kingdom come, my will be done because I've hallowed my name because I'm in the place of God. No, the prayer continues. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done. See, you know why you have worry and fear? It's all pride. You've put yourself in the place of God. You lack humility. You, you lack the order that God has designed. His name is to be hallowed not yours. So that's the first point. And again, you've gotten used to it. The, the second point's shorter. The name of God. This, the second thing that I want to look at, though, is the place of man. When you begin to hallow the name of God, when you begin to see the name of God as holy as right, it, it will totally change your understanding of your place in this life. You know, John Calvin wrote this famous book called Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it begins, without the knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. It's a, it's a true knowledge of self that leads us to a knowledge of God. We realize how weak we are. We realize we're going to die. We realize how frail we are. And we realize, okay, there must be someone other than me holding all this together. But his second point is, but without a knowledge of God, there's no real knowledge of self. Unless you really know God, Unless you really understand who God is and his word. When you start to understand God, when you start to glimpse God, then you really get yourself. You really understand who you are. And this is why throughout the Bible, all of the, whenever somebody encounters God, what happens? What is the response to encountering God? All throughout the Bible, you know, before you encounter God, you judge everything by your standard, right? I'm a good person because I've decided I'm a good person, right? But whenever we see in the Bible someone encountering the holy and living God, remember Moses? I mean, this is Moses. These aren't, these aren't jokers in the Bible. They're like the guys. Remember when Moses encounters God, God passes before him in Exodus 33. What does Moses do? It says he, he says, oh God, 
have mercy on us. We are a stiff-necked people. That's how he responds. He, he sees himself. He rightly sees himself. He rightly sees everyone around him. You are holy and glorious and good, and we have, we have fallen so short. How about Isaiah? Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? He sees the glory of God, and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My standard is unclean. My standard is unworthy. My standard is unholy. But you, you are the holy one. Without a knowledge of God, you'll never really have a knowledge of self. It's, it's only when you begin hallowing the name of the Lord rightly that you'll ever find self-knowledge, a true self-knowledge. It's only really when you start understanding how eternal God's eternality, how eternal and consistent God is. He never began. He will never end. To quote Francis Schaeffer, he is just the God who is there. He's just there. And when you understand that he has outlived every king and every kingdom and every nation and every galaxy and every force, you'll begin to not feel so big. When you begin to realize not only is God timeless and eternal, but he's sovereign over every detail. Just think about that. God is sovereign over every single detail. There was a 16th century theologian named Louis de Molina and he came up with this idea that I've studied a little bit about called middle knowledge, the middle knowledge of God. And I'm not gonna you know, get into a big theological treatise today, but I, I like to think about this. What, what Molina said is not only does God know everything that has happened, God knows everything that's happened. God knows your biography better than you know it. You ever think about that? And not only does he know your biography, he knows the biography of all seven and a half billion people living on the world right now. Yeah, I read this week, there are 10,000 trillion ants on earth. Obviously, it's a guess. We don't do good census work with ants, but <laughs> 10,000 trillion ants. And God knows the cellular makeup of every single one of those ants. He knows what every single one of those ants had for breakfast this morning. He knows everything that has happened ever but Molina said, not only does he know that, he knows everything that will happen, okay, but he also knows everything that could happen. When you start doing that math, God knows every possibility of anything that could ever happen. It's mind-blowing to think about, and he is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all circumstance, and I want you to hear this. You are all only the product of circumstance. If you'd been born 400 years ago in Georgia, what would your life be like? You know? If you were born in Western China today, if you were born in a different neighborhood with different parents that didn't instill values, didn't, you didn't have any privilege, what would your uh, life, you're, you're the product of circumstance. God is sovereign over all circumstances. When you start to realize his eternality, his sovereignty, his righteousness, you know, God only has good intentions all the time. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about. God's intent, there's only righteousness that flows from him. It is very rare that we ever do something that is good and righteous. 
And I know that this to be true because whenever I do something that's pretty good and pretty selfless, I feel really good about myself, <laughs> right? That shows that it's not natural for me to do that. You know, yesterday, I was, I was playing basketball. There's a little goal, like my middle school neighbor's shoot on, and I got out there. And I almost made it around the key one time without missing a three-pointer. Almost did. And I felt so good about myself. And the reason is, is because I'm really bad at basketball. You know, a good basketball player can make it around the key. It's not like the greatest moment of his life. But for me, I was like, oh my goodness. It's because it's not a natural thing for me to do. It's, not, it's a very irregular thing for me to do. And that's the same kind of way we feel when we do something that's pretty generous, right? We're like, oh, look what I've done. It just proves that you're not normally like that. This proves how unrighteous our hearts really are. But God is totally righteous. Every intention, every movement of his heart is good all the time. You see, when you begin praying this prayer, you really understand the true nature of God. When you begin hallowing the name of God, when God begins hallowing his name in your life, you begin seeing the true place of man. And hear this, the true place of man will both dramatically humble you and dramatically encourage you. You might say, how can I be so encouraged? And here's why. Look how the prayer begins. It begins with our Father. You know, the old Latin pater noster. It's a, it's a, it's a familiar phrase. Our Father. My Father. You know, if I were to say, you know, my John Kellis. I'm so proud of him. He, you know, is turning four. My Rainer turned two years old and he's doing so well. You know, I don't, you would know I'm not talking about some random kid named John Kellis. You'd know I'm talking about my son. There's a, there's an intimacy there. My son, my John Kellis, my father, my father. When you really start to understand the hallowness of the name of God, and you really start to understand your place, this should not be. Who here has a right to call the holy God of the universe my Father? And see, this is the wondrous mystery. This is the wonder of the gospel. That God so desires that we would know him that we would have him as our own, that we would be his children. This is what John 1 says, that if we, if we know Christ, that God sent to save us, then we would become the children of God. You see, what God has done in this most amazing way is he sent his child, he sent his son, my son, God says, to be our substitute, to be our replacement. The son went to the cross. The son became the enemy. So the enemy, so the broken, so the fallen, so the distorted like us could be the son. It's the wonder of the gospel. The gospel so puts us in our place. It so humbles us and encourages us at the same time. You are approaching the almighty God who is sovereign over all, who wants you to say to him, Jesus models for you to say to him, my father, my father my close father, our father to the one who deserves to be hallowed. 
You see, if you, if you start to see this, if, if, if this becomes true of us, if, this, if the gospel penetrates us like this, humility won't be an act. It'll be who we become. If we begin to really pray this way, to really believe this, to hallow the name of our Father, we'll be in our right place before him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray together. And Father, we do pray this prayer. We Help us to see how hallowed your name is, how holy your name is. And yet in Christ, you, you have not left us far off. You have called us to be close and to be near. Father, I pray that, that this would be true of us, that we would pursue this virtue, that we would pursue who we are to be in light of who you've called us to be. That you'd begin working out the gospel in our heart, begin working out our place in our heart. That, that Father, what you say of us in Christ, the things that you say of us, Lord, to be true, that they actually would be true of us. That we'd live in a manner worthy of this name we've been given, of this calling that we've been given. Father, do this work. Press this into us, Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name in us. Hallow your name to us today so we may rightly see our place before you and so that you may, Lord, receive the glory that you are due. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.